We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. Episode number 27 of Lion Legacy. We are in the heart of August, a big vacation month for many of us. Ross, give us a little idea of some vacation plans coming your way. Yeah, the family and I are going to be down uh, in the Jersey Shore. We like to go to Cape May. That's been our spot the last number of years. Jared and I will be actually be together towards the end of August. We're going to another a friend's wedding, so that'll be fun. There's a pe- pe- fellow uh, Penn Stater. And then it, shortly after that, then we get into September, but then we have, as alluded to in the last episode, we have the uh, Penn State-Wisconsin game. So a lot of travel coming up. It should be fun. I- I'm tired thinking about it because I've not really gone much of anywhere in the last year and a half, but <laughs> it's nice to have some plans in the books. I'll tell you that much. So true. I'm looking forward to uh, that trip to Denver. I've actually never been to Denver, so looking forward to yeah checking out the city and, and certainly going to Abby's wedding. Shout out, as you mentioned, to our Penn State friend, Abby, who is getting married. Supposed to get married last year, and that yep. didn't happen for obvious reasons. It's always good to to celebrate a great occasion like that and actually meet her new daughter. Yeah. And so, you know, we talk about vacation this month and it's only fitting. The guest that we spoke with this week, his name is Mike Zanakis. Mike is currently the chief product officer with Vacasa. They're in the hospitality and uh, vacation rental space, a la Airbnb, but they're a little bit different. He'll explain why. That's been just a booming business as travel comes back here in the summer of 2021. You think about people wanting to travel, but maybe they want their own space. They don't necessarily want to stay at a hotel. And so they rent their own house. And Vacasa is really big in that space. He's had a great career, spent many years at Open Table. I'm a fan of Open Table as well. Always like that to uh, book my re- my restaurant res- reservations. And then Mike bounced over to Vacasa. It was great speaking with Mike. He's got a great background. He's a really um, smart businessman, as you'll hear. A lot of excellent experience, both at home and abroad. He'll talk about that as well. He spent some time in Europe, so you'll hear that. And with that, we're going to we're going to pack our bags and get ready to go on our trip with Mike Zanakis. All right, let's welcome Mike Zanakis, 1990 Penn State graduate with a degree in aerospace engineering. It's an easy major, right? Like many of our guests beyond hitting the books, Mike was quite active at Penn State. Lion's Paw, Lion Ambassadors, Parmenu, Mortarboard, and the Air Force ROTC program. After graduating, he spent six years in the Air Force, followed by a career at the Clorox Company, Open Table, and now Vacasa, a vacation rental house company. Wishing that we were actually in person doing this interview <laughs> at one of Vacasa's properties, but nevertheless, Mike, welcome to Lion Legacy. Thank you. It's great to be here. Mike, before we get into the interview, first, thank you for your many years of service when you were in the United States Air Force. How do you think your time in the Air Force and the military prepared you? Did it prepare you a little bit differently than if you were to have gone from Penn State right into the private sector? 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's just part of the, the nature of serving in the armed forces as an officer. So I think for me, my first assignment was on the island of Crete. I was a flight commander, uh, which meant I had 55 people working for me, and they ranged in age from 18, 19-year-olds right out of high school to 45-year-old master sergeants who'd been in the Air Force for 25 years. It puts you in a place where you gain a lot of confidence uh, in your ability to, to lead at a very early age. And one of the things that I run into even today with people is people often experience what I'll call imposter syndrome, where they question the role they're in and whether they really should be in it. Uh, and for me, being in the Air Force right off the bat, I got to experience that immediately out of college and then get through it and recognize, yeah, I belonged where I was. I was capable. I wasn't put in a position to fail. And I've taken that with me ever since. So I, I think it was a great way to enter uh, post-college. And I've taken a lot of what I learned in the Air Force and applied it uh, throughout my career. Excellent. So we, we are going to fill in the gaps of along the way of your resume, but I'm going to jump all the way to the present. Okay. I'm going to switch to your current company, Vacasa. So I'm sure when people visit Vacasa's website, they say, oh, it's just like Airbnb, right? Sure. That, I imagine that's probably a comment you get all the time. But tell us a little bit more about Vacasa and the unique uh, offering that the company has. Yeah. So if you look at the website, that would be your first guess. But in fact, we're unique in that we're actually providing the supply to people like Airbnb, Verbo, and booking. So we're actually managing the homes. So if you're a, a homeowner, you have a second home and, and you want to hand it over to Vacasa, we're your property manager. Uh, we'll take the keys, we'll clean the house, we'll maintain the house, we'll distribute the inventory, the home, the available nights to Airbnb and Verbo and others. And we apply our decision science team, our machine learning engineers, uh, data scientists, and come up with all the pricing algorithms that we believe uh, are best in class in the industry and therefore help optimize what you can generate in terms of revenue for your home. And uh, just like someone landing on Airbnb, you can land on Vacasa. But on Vacasa, you're only going to see homes that, uh, that are part of, of our portfolio. So we have about 32,000 homes today that we manage. And we just recently announced that we'll be going public through a SPAC, uh, not to get into finance with you, but if you're familiar with a SPAC, we're going through a SPAC process. And so anticipate being listed in a couple of months. So lots of excitement for us at the business. I, I have to tell you, I accidentally went back to work. A good friend of mine who was the former CEO at Open Table stepped off the board to be an interim CEO with the sole purpose of hiring someone. And since the company is headquartered in Portland, he asked me to join him. We both live here in the Bay Area. He's just down the street. And I thought it would be a three-month gig of just helping him pull down the fort. Um, and I worked two days in Portland and COVID hit and the lockdowns hit. And it was an existential threat to the business. And not surprising, right after COVID, no one was doing vacations and all the booking we had to return the funds. Uh, so we were, were losing about a million dollars a day when I started. So wonderful mm -hmm. way to go back to work. But <laughs> thankfully, we, uh, we were able to raise money. And part of raising money was me committing to stick around for a couple of years. So that's when I slid into the chief product officer role. And I'm glad I did. It's been a, it's been a fun ride so far. That's fantastic, and, and congrats on uh, on going public. It's my understanding that this is the second company that you have it, it, it helped take, take, take public, <laughs> which is phenomenal. I know you spent 17 years at, at Open Table, and were part of that team that first took the company public in 2009 and then sold to, to Priceline in yep. 2014. You're actually our first guest that has taken a company public, so I'm curious what was it like first building open table over the years and then how intense was that process going public 
Yeah, I was really fortunate. I landed at Open Table in January of 2000. So that was back during still the original dot-com boom, just before the bust. And so I got there right as, I think there were 40 of us at the time. And we had just raised what's called the Series A venture round. And we were really lucky. We closed that round. And about a year later, we closed at Series B. We raised 10 initially, and then about 40 the second round. I swear to God, the day we closed that second round, the bubble burst. And the dot-coms went away. There was no more capital to be found. So we were really lucky in that regard. And it allowed us then to hunker down uh, and think about how the money we raised and build the business for the long term. And thankfully, we had some really great investors uh, and board members who were committed to what we were trying to do. Most people, I, I don't think, understand what was involved with Open Table because what you see is the website or the mobile app, and, and you think, hey, I'm booking a reservation. And back then, the concept of booking a restaurant reservation online was uh, completely foreign. But the big piece was there was no way to do it unless you put technology in restaurants. And so in 2000 and 2001, every restaurant on the planet used pen and paper and the phone. And so we had to seed the market by installing hardware and software and wiring the restaurants. And back then, you didn't even have broadband in restaurants. And so we procured the broadband. And it was really a heavy lift ugly, dirty business that I don't think anyone would want to do unless you believed in the second half of the business, which is once we enabled the supply, uh, we could take the demand from the diners and start putting them through our network and then have it feed on itself. So yeah, early days was heavy lifting, hard work. You get to build a team from scratch. When you stay at a company like that, as long as I did, and we were unique, the exec team that uh, sort of got formed stuck together for, for the better part of those 16 years. I was the longest tenured, but the majority of us had been there 12, 13 years at the time of going public. We were having a ton of fun and really excited about the growth in the business. But what does change over time is the, the nature of the business and the culture. We work really hard to try and maintain that startup feel and that energy and that excitement. But the reality is you grow up and you start having to put in place processes, uh, a little bit of bureaucracy that uh, the average young entrepreneur isn't too excited about. But we, we managed to navigate that. And to your question about taking a company public, it is an absolute transition. You find yourself, when you're just operating with the, the venture funding, they're incredibly long-term focused in terms of investing dollars. They're not looking for uh, necessarily profitability. As soon as you take it public, you've got a different audience in the investors and you start operating quarter to quarter. So it adds a level of stress, I guess you'd say, that, that wasn't there prior to going public. But the fact is, when you work at a company, you have a team that's working so hard, it is the culmination of all that work. And it's a huge celebration for the employees and the team. It's exciting. They then get to pay attention to what's happening in the public market with the stock and how the business and, and the work they do is reflected in that stock. I don't believe the stock market is always that efficient in the short term, but in the long term, it plays out. And, and we got to do that. And, and again, unique circumstance for me, because from beginning to taking it public and then doing something that isn't very common, which is a public company, but then it's consumed by another public company in the form of Priceline. Another interesting experience for sure. So expand on that a little bit more. That was going to be the next question is when OpenTable was sold to Priceline. What was, from your view, how did that go? Was that different intensity than go, taking the company public initially? Yeah, we were fortunate because Priceline was the perfect acquirer. Most people hear Priceline, they can think back. Priceline in its heyday was one of the dot-com darlings. 
But really what Priceline became is they purchased years and years ago a little company in Amsterdam called Booking.com, which is now a behemoth of a company. In fact, Priceline changed its holding company name to Booking. And so Booking is Booking.com, Priceline.com, Kayak uh, is part of that group, Rentalcars.com, Agoda in Asia, and some smaller property sites they own. And so for us, it, it fit in their portfolio. They were all about travel and, and they wanted to add the dining piece. And so we were able to operate independently. Like what we basically had was, in many ways, it was a, a really interesting time because we got back to being able to invest in the business because booking was spitting off so much cash. And we were a small piece of the total equation at that point. And uh, so it was fun. The downside is you are part of a much big, bigger organization. And so you lose a little bit of that sense of what you're doing and what you're contributing and, and the celebrations of your wins because it's all hidden in this much bigger company. I mean, their investment thesis was heavily tied to the way in which they had taken booking into this global behemoth. They thought they could do something similar. And ultimately, there was an underestimation of the difference between hotels and hotel inventory versus restaurants. But for a window of time, we were able to go test the markets throughout Europe. For me, it was great. Uh, I was in London as the managing director, and they basically gave me a checkbook and said, great, let's open up in France and let's open up in, in Paris and Amsterdam, and let's look at Barcelona and Madrid and extend the, the footprint. So pretty fun. But what happens when you get acquired at is many of the senior execs uh, on the open table team, it, it, their career trajectory sort of changes. And so your CFO immediately leaves because you don't need a CFO anymore. Your CEO kind of goes, I like being a CEO. So they do it for a little while, but then they step aside. Uh, so everyone starts to leave, which left me in London, basically. I was the last person standing from the original team. And that's ultimately why I left. It run its course. It was an amazing run. I enjoyed even after the acquisition, but it definitely changed the dynamic uh, in terms of where I was with my career. Curious about your experiences in London. There's not many people mm. that have the the opportunity to live and, and it, work abroad. Yeah, it was was a unique, wonderful experience. So I, I'd been at Open Table almost 12 years, and but for me it was it was always I always felt I was learning, challenged. The business was still growing. I was having a ton of fun, so it made it easy to stick around. But I, I pretty much sort of hit my peak. We got public, etc. And right at that time, I was contemplating that I might leave. And we had a transition at the CEO. Uh, our CFO became the CEO, he's a good friend, and he said, hey, I, you know, would you be willing to go to London and run the Europe business? Uh, we had just acquired uh, a company there called Top Table. And I was like, oh, maybe. I have a family. Let me talk to my wife. I had two, two young boys at the time, and I didn't even get the sentence completed before my wife was packing the bags and ready to go. So that made, that made it easy to do. Uh, my kids were young enough. They were 9 and 11 that they weren't kicking and screaming about leaving friends behind, but they were old enough that it would be a really unique, positive experience. And we set our sights on two years. Uh, that's what we had committed to do. But it was in those two years that then the acquisition took place, which they asked me to stick around another year. And then after we did that, the family started saying, hey, can we stay another year? They were, at that point, all in on London. Um, so we almost stayed for good. We really enjoyed it that much. We looked at our kids' passports when we came back, and they had each been to 35 different countries, let alone the number of cities they were able to visit. And it's just the nature of being in London, where it's a three-day weekend, and you, you fly an hour to somewhere in Europe. And so we took advantage of I highly recommend to people when they talk about opportunities to go abroad to do it. Like, just 
Don't try to talk yourself out of it. Don't debate the downsides. Just go do it. Uh, you won't ever regret it. So for us, that, that was certainly the case. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I actually, I didn't study abroad at Penn State, but I did spend uh, just under three years in Madrid, Spain. And oh, you're, you're awesome. spot on. Just yeah, the, the opportunity just, to right. learn, to gain no a new doubt. culture, new understanding. It's you, you can't put a price on that. I totally agree. So when we look at your role today, chief product officer, I imagine some people would have a hard time explaining what that role sure. actually is. So I'll look to you in the broad sense to explain it and maybe specifically at your job. Sure, sure. In the broad sense, if you talk about product management, you're ultimately responsible for whatever product or service your company is offering to a set of customers. And therefore, you need to understand what those customers want. Uh, you need to have a team that can take those requirements and translate them into something that engineers can work off of. And you're ultimately then building the features or products or services to meet the demand of the market. So that's at the, at the highest level. And the product team made up of product managers. If a CASA, I also have the design organization underneath me as well. And you partner directly, in my case, with the uh, chief technology officer and his engineering organization. Sort of you join at the hip between product and engineering. You'll, you will often find tech companies where product can sometimes roll up to the CTO. I'm a big fan of there being two of you so that there's a healthy tension uh, when you're talking about priorities and, and what you're doing. For me, when you reach the point at the exec level, it's about hiring talented people and letting it's unleashing them. And it's about helping the entire company understand the priorities broadly speaking and having to a framework looking out more than next quarter or two quarters three years out and saying how can we be successful with the product vision by making changes or doing things today and ultimately i just think product management is best career path because you get to do a little bit of everything. In many ways, you're a general manager of the product you own. And you're working with customers and trying to understand the market. You're working with engineering to develop. You're working with finance to, to build out the business cases. You're working, in our case, with the operations team to deliver products and services that make their job easier. We work with customer service, the same thing. So you you touch it all. You work with marketing on the release of a product. And if you're not sure what area of a business you might enjoy, you go into product because you get to touch uh, touch all the bases. And I've loved it. I've been a big fan of product management for a long time. At, at Vacasa specifically, because we're this two-sided market again, we have the homeowners. And so we have a product group that focuses on what's important to the homeowner themselves. We have the guests who come to our site and then stay in our homes. And, and what can we build and deliver for them? In terms of the, the web experience, the mobile app, we're investing heavily in smartphone technology now to make it a seamless experience. And then you have the internal employees. So we're an operations-intensive organization. We have thousands of people in the field who are cleaning the homes, maintaining the homes, and, and ensuring the operation of the, of the home goes smoothly for the guests, that the stay goes smoothly. And so you build products and services for them as well. And so that's how we're structured across the team. As I mentioned, there's a design piece. And then the other group I have, uh, what's called revenue optimization. And that's where I have a ton of uh, data scientists, machine learning engineers, and they're all about... Um, continually optimizing the algorithms we have to do pricing on our site or testing elasticity across our uh, distribution channels like Airbnb, et cetera. Lots of fun. I'm enjoying it. We'll see how long I stick around, but uh, for now, I'm having a good time.
So all of that that you mentioned that hums along very nicely in a, I'll call it a non-pandemic world. But obviously you mentioned that you started back about March last year, just before the shutdown. And obviously the travel and hospitality industry just gets absolutely crushed by the pandemic, unfortunately. So tell us about your experience. Yeah. So you're absolutely right because no one was going anywhere out of the gate. And so for us in the early days, it was crisis management. That's what it was. It was a morning meeting with exec and that closed day meeting with exec. And in those 12 hours, God knows what changed. And that's, and you just had to continually adjust your plans and adapt to the circumstances around you. So we're looking at our cash flow and going, we're going to be out of money entirely in six weeks. We were handing out about a million dollars a day in refunds. And that means you look at your team and you say, now we got to make some really tough decisions about furloughs or terminations. And, and, and it's an awful place to be, but you are constantly looking ahead and, and asking the question, absent making these changes now, we're all going to go away. This whole business will go under. And so we're going to have to make some really difficult, challenging decisions. So that's what it was in the early days. And what came with that was a recognition. We then had to raise money. And so we had to, I'll say, get our house in order with a plan that said, what if this lasts a year? What if nothing changes for a year? Let's build the model and a plan that reflects that and try to determine how much cash we need. What if this turns around in three months? What's that look like? What if it's six months, et cetera? And so we built those different plans. It allowed us to go back to our primary investor, which is uh, Silver Lake, uh, a private equity firm, and and make the case. And they believe in the business. Once again, this is one of those instances where when you take money from outside investors, it's really helpful to know if they're truly aligned with what you're trying to build. I think they absolutely were. And so it allowed us to take a deep breath when we took in the new funds and then watch as things unfold. What happened shocked us all, which is just how fast it bounced back. And there's a variety of reasons. So so number one, the immediate, like all travel is stopped and everyone fearful of what's it all mean. Obviously that started to let up a little bit. The local restrictions on short-term rentals, uh, many counties immediately passed restrictions and said, you just can't do them. Those started to lift a little. And what came out the other side was people saying, I want to travel, but I don't want to stay in a hotel. I just, I I want to be in my own space. Mm -hmm. So that type of travel was migrating. But the biggest thing was a remote work as the pandemic dragged on continues to this day. It opened the opportunity for people who are sitting in their, you know, homes in their apartments and saying, well, I can actually work anywhere. Why don't I get out of the city? Why don't I go up to Lake Tahoe and spend a month or two months? Uh, And so we started to see that start to uptick. And then it got coupled with, as you rolled into that first summer, Every kid's camp was canceled. They had the whole summer. They could pick any time, anywhere, and it started to play out. And so we continue to see that. And then as we got vaccinations out and you rolled into this summer, again, obviously some circumstances changing rapidly as we sit here today. But then what you had is this enormous pent-up demand. And if you haven't tried it yet, go online and try to find a place. Like, there is not enough supply. So we just happened to you know, survive the initial blow, hunker down, make some really tough decisions, which allowed us to then raise some funds, which then allowed us to build back the team and then got, quite frankly, really lucky on how quickly things turned around. 
and that's what took off. 2020, I'm trying to think of the numbers, we're, we're double the bookings and revenue in this six-month period than we were two years ago. Look at it, 19, when things mm. were normal. Wow. So it, it's really crazy. Now, how long does that last? I, I think the remote work and people's shift from hotels to short-term rentals, vacations, is here for good. And so I think the industry itself will benefit from that. And we certainly see people choosing to invest in second homes. And it's one of the things we talked about at Picasa is we're actually enabling people to ease, more easily do that because we can do the math for you. We can sit with you, know your property, use all our data, tell you exactly how much revenue we can generate for you in a year. And you can bake that into your calculus about buying a second home and maybe taking a mortgage. And if it's break even or better, it's a lot easier to make that choice and own that, that second property. Anyways, yeah, we're fortunate. And now as we're getting ready to go public, we're gonna raise about 400 some odd million dollars in that offering. And it gives us a chance to invest heavily. And the biggest investment is gonna be in product and tech. We're gonna trip the size of the product and engineering group, which will be a challenge in and of itself to grow that fast, but it'll be fun and exciting. And then the rest of the money will go toward acquisitions. What we do is we acquire supply in addition to us calling on people and selling them, but we'll go out and find a management company that manages 300 homes in, in Myrtle Beach, and we'll acquire the entire company and, and then roll that up. Lots of uh, exciting stuff ahead. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that the company weathered the uh, the worst of the storm and, and they're, they're certainly moving in the right direction there. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, Mike. You mentioned earlier how the former CEO at OpenTable moved over to Picasa and brought you along. We have a number of students who listen to the podcast and we're always talking about the importance of the Penn State network. And this is a little bit different in that you're building your professional network. So tell us a little bit about how you've gone about building relationships in the working world throughout your career. Yes, it plays a really important part in your career. And I think early on, people coming out of college need to just recognize the part it can play and try to, I'll be perfectly honest, I was the type of person who looked at the term networking and the concept and was like, Ugh, sounds off. Like, well, I don't want to do this. Meet people and back then exchange cards and just to me felt just very cheesy, quite frankly. And what you have to do is change your frame of reference and say, look, I'm doing this because I'm trying to invest in myself and, and really think about it in the long-term positive sense of it. And, and what you realize is it does come back to, to assist you. What you realize is you actually form really good relationships. It wasn't about networking, you know, in quotes, it was about meeting people in your career you then can tap into and ask for advice or uh, you're trying to hire folks and you can lean into them and say, hey, do you have folks you can recommend? You can do references. You can, you find jobs like this one I'm in right now, brought over by uh, a friend from Open Table. In fact, our chief revenue officer we brought over uh, from Open Table. So it just, it plays out. And I think Penn State, it's an unbelievable community and I've maintained ties from friends and relationships throughout my career with the Penn State community. I did the same thing when I went back to business school at, uh, at Kellogg at Northwestern. And you just, when you're old enough, when you're around as long as I have, you just start to realize how often those paths cross. And they're really positive. And you don't have to think of it as a negative when, I, when you hear the word, don't forget to network. Now, in terms of specific advice for a young person, and I'll use LinkedIn as an example, I would really caution you not to think of it in terms of, let me see how many people I can get on my LinkedIn and, and show a number. Thoughtful about your networking. There's got to be a reason you're interacting with someone. It's not a game to see, look at my network 
It's about building a really thoughtful network of people that at some point in the future, you would feel comfortable reaching out to them. Because if you wouldn't, then you wasted your time on whatever sort of networking you did in the past. That's just a, I'll call it a, a bit of advice of my own learning over time where I look at LinkedIn now and I'm like, there's 10% of the people I truly actually reach out to. And you just want to get yourself out of that space. Fantastic. And and you mentioned the Northwestern there. So I want to touch on that a little bit. I know you teach an entrepreneurship course at Kellogg. Curious, what would you say are the, the two to three takeaways that you want students to leave at the end of the semester? Yeah. So so the class is uh, it's called Launching and Leading Startups. And ultimately, it's a very high level on all the various aspects of doing it, right? From risk mitigation to fundraising to finding product market fit and then how do you scale a business and then how do you hire and, and et cetera. And then leadership, a, a big piece on that as well. For me, there's a few things. One is I want them to leave just with the language of a business, of starting a business. I want them to feel comfortable in an environment. If they're out here in Silicon Valley and they're hearing people talk about a Series A or a Series B, like they at least they know what that means. When they hear people talk about a go-to-market strategy and, and spend and cost of acquisition and lifetime value, they know what it means. They don't have to be experts yet, but they feel comfortable with, with the language. Second thing is I want them to, and it, it, part of what I do with the class is every class I bring in a founder slash CEO as a speaker, because what I want them to see is they absolutely can do it themselves. I, there's nothing special that says well, there's this unique set of people out there who are able to do this. You're just in the class and just know that it's highly unlikely that you could pull this off. It couldn't be farther from the truth. There's not a whole lot different. So I should feel comfortable either starting it or just being part of a startup. Ah, it sounds like a great class. I'm sure your students get a lot out of it. So thanks for sharing that. We are actually going to transition and put you in the lion's den brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride and reminisce about your time at Penn State. And just remember when you want to show off your Penn State pride, visit lions-pride.com for the latest and greatest apparel and merchandise. Mike, we're going to start out with a student question. Uh, we have a, part, a wonderful partnership with our friends at the Daily Collegian and uh, gives us the opportunity for students to submit a question. Okay. So this, week, this week's question comes to us from Tim Harrington. He's a rising senior uh, studying industrial engineering, which is another great major. Yeah. Tim read that you originally planned to go to Notre Dame. First of all, you made the right choice. We know that. Right. And so he wants to know what was it about Penn State that made you change your mind? Yeah, it's funny because I used to give tours uh, at Lion Ambassador. And it was one of the things I shared was this sort of change of heart. So I was an army brat growing up, which means I lived all over the country, all over the world. And I had no attachment to a specific geographic school. And Notre Dame was the one school, mostly because my grandmother, who's Irish, Irish Catholic, who absolutely adored Notre Dame, that I just had an affinity for. And I'd watch football games. And, and so it was, it was like the only school that, that when it was time to think about applying to colleges. And I applied, I got in, I had a full scholarship because of ROTC. So it was kind of a done deal. And a woman came to my high school. I was in Maryland finishing up high school. It was the last assignment for my dad. And she dropped off the application at Penn State. She talked about it a little bit. I didn't know anything about Penn State. Application was easier than the Notre Dame one. So I'm like, yeah, I'll fill this one out as well. And uh, when my dad took me to Notre Dame to visit, he said, why don't we stop at Penn State on the way home? Because I got into Penn State as well. And I was like, I don't know why. And he's like, well, because I've never 
in State College. Nice just to break up the, the drive. And I said, great. And so we pulled into Happy Valley. It happened to be a beautiful day in the spring, and it just hit me over the head. It was some combination of State College and the downtown and the students out and about. Because it was such a beautiful day, everyone was out on the hub lawn playing sports or just sunbathing. <laughs> and, and so we walked around campus and walked around downtown, and I just had a much stronger connection and feel for Penn State than I did when I walked around Notre Dame and South Bend. South Bend's nothing to, to hang your hat on. I don't want to offend anyone who's listening from South Bend. And so it literally was as simple as knowing I had found the place I belonged. And it's hard to put it into words. Why? What? But it was such a strong feeling that I went from years of knowing there was one school I was planning to go to and just flipping on a dime. We got home from the trip and I turned to my parents and said, I think I want to go to Penn State, <laughs> which they were confused, but they were supportive with whatever I wanted. Again, I, because of ROTC, it didn't matter so much in terms of how you thought about it from the financial situation. And so they said, great, uh, Penn State it is. And it was the best decision for me. No, no question about it. I had an unbelievable four years. Continue to, to be, you know, passionate about Penn State. And I really can't imagine had I been, uh, had I gone anywhere else. But that was it. It was just walking on campus and knowing I found my place. We love hearing that story. And I'm glad that you humored your dad on the way back. I'm glad he suggested that you take a stop there and you said, okay, (laughs) it all works out. It's just weird how that things happen like that. And Mike, we've also, we've really enjoyed hearing about your super impressive career that you've told us about today. And and once you were in Penn State, how did it end up preparing you for that career that, and all the accomplishments that you've uh, shared? Yeah, you know, it's it's a combination. So one, I obviously went right into the Air Force and and certainly the preparation came with uh, the work I, I had to do for uh, ROTC, but but honestly, it was much broader than that. It was the opportunities I was given, and I, you know, I, I said this before. I hate to repeat it, but like the leadership opportunities that that I found at Penn State in Lion Ambassadors, in Lion's Paw, in ROTC, they just they presented themselves and gave me a sense of myself and gave me confidence about who I am and what I can do and what I can accomplish. I've always, you know, taken from college that I feel very comfortable meeting a group of people, rallying a group of people, motivating a group of people. And it's partly just what I did in school on certain occasions. Quite frankly, the aerospace engineering degree, I'm as far removed and my career was as far removed as it could be a little bit while I was in the Air Force, but as you could be. Yet, I think that was a tremendous foundation. I was not the finest student by any stretch. I started strong and finished miserably in college and looked back and felt really proud about about achieving that result, sticking it out despite some of the struggles I had. And so that's that, I think, has played out. And again, back to sort of feeling confident and taking chances. When I look at my career, when in the Air Force, first assignment was on the island of Crete. I don't think I would have requested that if I didn't have that confidence in myself. And, and a sense of uh, adventure that you can pick up while you're at Penn State. And from there, came back to the National Security Agency, which was a unique position and role. There was an opportunity to go work at the White House, and I put myself forward to go do it and got the role. And then it was, I'm going to leave it all. I was having a great career and said, I'm going to leave it all and go try something different, which was to go back to school and, and make my way to the Bay Area. And I really do believe that time at, at Penn State, that foundation that was laid, helped me be the person I am today and helped me in making those 
those decisions along the way. And it doesn't hurt that you you can establish such a strong community at Penn State, that that community was there when I was in D.C., and it was there when I decided to come out to California, and it was there when I went back to business school, and there were Penn Staters. They're everywhere, and it's a nice thing to have with you as you go on your journey in your career. Love that story. Toughest question, though, of the entire podcast. Ooh. Favorite Penn State memory. Ah, oh, come on. One memory. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to cheat. So I'll do it almost by year. So my freshman year, I graduated in 90. So freshman year, 86, first football game for me was unbelievable. As I said, I didn't grow up as a Penn State fan. I'd never been to Beaver Stadium. To walk into that stadium for the first time is pretty special. And it just so happens we won the national championship that year. So, you know, on the table for all the home games and, and have that play out the way it did is pretty, pretty great way to, to start your, your college journey and your uh, love of the sports team. After that, like each year, something different. The sophomore year for me, line of bastards was a big deal. And the, the weekend I spent after getting selected on the retreat and knowing that I'd come across something that was going to be really meaningful. I just knew it coming out of that the, the weekend with all of the students and it ultimately played out that way and I, re I can remember it vividly coming back from it and sitting in my dorm and, and smiling ear to ear. Junior year, dance marathon, I don't know how you don't have that at the top of your list somewhere if you've ever done it. It's just a pretty spectacular, amazing experience. I don't know if you guys are still doing the 48 hours or how many hours you do, but it was awesome. And then senior year, I don't know, I guess graduating, I guess that's up there. A lot of memories, as you say, impossible to pick one, but that's the journey through college. I'll go with those. If you could visit with yourself as an 18-year-old freshman, right, after making wow. the right choice to attend Penn State over Notre yeah. Dame, if you could go back and visit with yourself at that point, what advice would you share? I would tell myself to even lean in more to things, be willing to try more than I did. I, it took me longer than I wish it had. Ambassadors played a pretty big role, but those first couple of years at school, I was staying in my lane, in the books, which you need to be. But I would have, I would have put myself out there and tried more things that that I was unfamiliar with. It's, I, I became a risk taker later. And when I say risk taker, I'm not jumping out of airplanes, but although I might at some point, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, just, just willing to, to take a risk for yourself on, on putting yourself in what might seem like an uncomfortable position. I would highly encourage that 18 year old to do that. I would encourage that 18 year old to ask more girls out. I was really lame on that front. I was entirely intimidated and there was no reason I should have should have gone down that path more. And I guess the last thing I would say, I really didn't uh, appreciate on the academic side, how valuable it would have been to be more engaged with my professors and establish stronger relationships. Ultimately, I, I didn't spend a career in aerospace. And so maybe it wasn't as big a deal, but with my kids that have uh, a son who's a junior a son who's about to become a freshman. And I tell them all the time, establish those relationships, go in on the office hours, learn, take as much as you can from that experience. I think I underplayed the academic piece of it. And it's it's tough when there's so much other things to do at Penn State, but I would invest more time in that as well. So yeah, lots to improve on, but I've been pretty happy with the, the path I went down nonetheless. Uh, great advice. And on your number two point, I think it's a lot easier these days with the students with Tinder and Bumble and his. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
<laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Hey, no cell phones, nothing when I was, you know, it's funny. We just uh, have some Penn Staters that are in town visiting from Philly. Casey Moore was a year ahead of me. He was a line ambassador. And I, I took him around San Francisco today. And we were talking about, because his daughters are with him. Like, we didn't have phones. We didn't have, you just went out and it all just worked. You just said where you're going to meet and people showed up. And if they somehow arrived at the next bar or the apartment or not sure how or why, but it did, it worked. Uh, so I'm not sure what it would be like to, to go through college with, with, with the different tech world we live in, but it, it somehow managed to back then, way back then. Exactly. And Ross is also a lamb as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. awesome. Awesome. Yep. What, uh, what committee? Uh, I was a Sparks uh, okay, class yeah, of you know. yep, 2002. <laughs> not everyone can be a Hetzel, but uh, you know, Sparks pretty good too. There you go. Shout out to the Hetzels. <laughs> We want to touch on the family student leader excellence program oh, endowment sure. that you set up and I want to learn a little bit more about that and, and any other ways that you're connected with the yeah, university. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. So we set that up quite honestly. It's, it is about for us and my family, my wife is not a Penn Stater. She's a, a Georgetown alum, an American University alum, but she is as in love and, and passionate about the school as I am. It's just, it's the nature of when you marry into a Penn State family, I think. And we wanted to give back. And, you know, as I shared with you, I think Penn State played a, a pivotal role in my career trajectory and, and where I am and who I am. And so that particular endowment is it's tied to the leadership organizations that were so important to me, uh, towards supporting things like line ambassadors and, and other leadership groups groups at, uh, across campus. Um, I try to stay engaged as much as I can uh, with the school. I try to get back as, as much as I can live, living out here in California. We actually just committed, and I share this only because we're sitting here in this podcast format, and I think it's great that you guys are doing this, but we just committed to do another endowment specifically for the Alumni Association to support their digital program. And what I noticed uh, during COVID, but not surprising, is everyone had to shift and rethink how do we stay connected? How do we maintain that uh, community at Penn State. And I thought the Alumni Association did a pretty good job of trying to navigate that. And now I think they're saying, well, then how can we do more? How can we uh, leverage technology and make this just part of who we are even after COVID? And so um, we're excited to support that going forward. It's, it's why I think it's great that you guys thought through this idea sitting on COVID and it's great to see that uh, unfold. Yeah, that's fantastic. Just how you how much you give back and, and pay it forward. So kudos to you and thanks for all you continue to do. You bet. This has been uh, a great 45 minutes, I would say. One, we learned a lot. One, you're a smart guy, which we knew, but you did choose Penn State over Notre Dame. <laughs> Two, I'll say if we ever buy a vacation house. And then just the sense, I would say, of, of leadership and adventure that you've had, right? Starting at Penn State, going into the Air Force, really kind of, I would say, going into these zones of, of somewhat uncomfortability and figuring out a way to, to navigate and survive, even taking your family to London. But I, I think what, what's really unique about you is you've got that strong strategy and business sense, but you also have the, the personality. You could see really that you're easy to get behind, easy to go to war with. And I'm sure there's, there's well, many people that. in yeah, your no, organization that want to get in your boat and, and put the oar in the water and, and row with you. So that's, that's very kind of you, Jared. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, for coming on tonight. And we always end with, we are. Penn State, baby. Penn State. <laughs> Lion Legacy is a Baruda production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.